But before we kind of start, I have a question for you. Um, and I want you to think about this question. The question is, what happens when you are devoted to someone? Think about that question. What happens when you are devoted to someone? I'm not just talking about the casual thing. I'm talking about uh, a commitment and a willingness um, to die for them. I have uh, started to understand this a lot more in marriage and also as a parent. Um, I learned that the more time you spend with a person, it develops a deep love for them. And sometimes the love is instant and other times it takes time to unfold. But either way, I can say that love grows as you continue to spend time with a person. And when you love someone deeply and you're devoted to them, you love them to the point of dying for them. How many of you guys, as parents, you say you would die for your children? Okay. Okay. How many of you say you love, you would die for your family member? Okay. Most of us would. Right? I can confidently say that I love Ruth, my wife. I can confidently say I love Eric, my son, and I am devoted to them and I would die for them. That's Harder that is. Um, but devotion is not just about romantic relationships. For me, the word devotion encompasses my commitment to Ruth and Eric, and yet it encompasses much more. Devotion is all around us, right? Devotion, um, there's devotion to a cause, there's devotion to a political party, there's devotion to an ideology. There's devotion to our sports teams. We love our sports teams, soccer included. Yeah. <laughs> I don't watch soccer, by the way, but I know people do. There's devotion to a personal goal. There's devotion to our families and our friends and to our word. But the apostles in the early church knew something about devotion, probably in a deeper way than we can ever grasp. They risked their whole lives for him their bodies, for Jesus, someone that they love and someone they were devoted to. So we're going to have that kind of conversation today about devotion and reflect on the ways that the, the early disciples devoted themselves to Jesus. And we get a glimpse of this devotion in Acts chapter 5, verse 17 to 42. So in my study, I learned that that their deep devotion to following Christ was challenging, was costly, and it was constant. Again, their devotion to Jesus, it was challenging, it was costly, and it was constant. So if we can all share together our hearts to pray and ask God to help us understand what it means to be devoted to him. Jesus, we are constantly moving our bodies. And Lord, sometimes we forget to stop and breathe and to invite you in. So right now, Lord, we pray that you would make us aware of your spirit in this room. That you would hold back the darkness. That you would teach us how to be devoted to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the scripture, I'm going to kind of like set the scene it's a lot of verses, 
I'm not going to read all of them. It's like 17 to 42. I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading the verses. So if you have your Bibles, you can definitely follow along on your phones. I'm just going to kind of start from verse 17 and kind of like tell the story. And then as I tell the story, I'll kind of talk a little bit about what that actually kind of means for us today and how we can be devoted to Christ. So the apostles were meeting regularly at the temple in Jerusalem. And they are busy healing people. It's like this revival that's happening. Luke describes that people were being brought on beds for Peter's shadow to fall on them. Luke continues by saying more and more men and women are added to their number. In response to their bold preaching and miraculous healing, they, the disciples, the apostles, encounter even harsher persecution. We don't know what that is like in Western culture here. But they experience harsher persecution. Luke shares that religious authorities are filled with jealousy. And again, that word jealousy is not a Jewish word. It is a human word. We all have jealousy, right? So they are filled with jealousy because of the admiration and popularity of the apostles. If we can remember, there were about 3,000 Jews who were saved in one day. Can you imagine 3,000 people being saved and turned to Christ in one day? This is a win for the early church, but a major loss for the Sanhedrin. And Ananias, the high priest, viewed the temple grounds as his dominion, not this so-called Messiah and his uneducated, ordinary disciples. It was Ananias' place of a lucrative business where the money changers and the uh, animal merchants set up shops, shops, creating an industry of greed and exploitation. This was his business. And one of the reasons they hated Jesus so much was that he disrupted that business when he drove out the money changers and vendors. If we can remember back in the Gospels where Jesus comes into the temple and flips over the tables, this is that place that they are at again. So the high priest and his associates are still concerned about anything cutting into their spiritual authority and their business. So, seeing the apostles are gaining a large following with the temple, within the temple entrance, amassing large crowds, performing healing, telling everyone that Jesus is the Messiah, and refusing to abide by their first order, the Sadducees had the apostles arrested by the temple police. Luke adds that the description here, it was a public jail, which adds to the idea that they were trying to publicly shame the apostles by putting them in front of everybody, to letting them see that what they have done. But regardless of what plans men may make, God had his own plans. His plans always wins. So in this case, the Lord did not want his apostles to stay in jail. Luke tells us that by, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. Just for a minute, never seen an angel before. Just think about just being in jail. You're there. 
And then all of a sudden, an angel shows up and tells you to go back to the place where you are once arrested and tell them about this new life. So at daybreak, probably as devout Jews began to gather for morning sacrifice and morning prayer, the apostles came and did just that. They taught the people about Jesus and his salvation. This was the place where the temple was supposed to be, a place where the house of God was, a place where people can come and worship, a place where they can come and worship God fully, not a place where there is exploitation and greed. So as the temple, the council assembled, waited for the prisoners to be brought from the prison house, they could not find the apostles. Apostles were missing. They, could not es- they, they had no evidence of an escape, nor had the guards seen the angel. Just think about what they were thinking. They captured these guys, they put them in jail, they brought the Pharisees to condemn these men, and now there's no men. Where are they? They're gone. So the temple police find the apostles in the very same place where they were arrested, doing the very same thing for they were, what they were arrested for. In the morning, when they capture them, they were very cautious. They didn't use force, but they led them back to the place, the Sanhedrin, so they can be on trial. The temple police feared the people. They feared the wrath of the people, that they would be stoned. So once the apostles are again in custody, they brought them into the Sanhedrin for questioning. Though the question in verse 28 is more of an accusation than a question, they say to the apostles this, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. There's four things that happen in this. One, the high priests don't even ask questions about how they escape prison. They totally ignore that. Two, they never mention Jesus. They refer to him as this name or this man. Three, the authorities are trying to accuse the apostles of filling Jerusalem with their teaching as if it originates from them and done in their power, even though the apostles have told them repeatedly over and over that this authority and power comes from Jesus. And fourth, the high priest sought to blame the apostles for blaming Jesus' death on them when they had done them themselves. If you can recall back into Matthew, at Jesus' crucifixion, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd by putting the blood on their hands when Pilate sought to to free Jesus. The scripture says this, this is what Pilate says. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. So as they make the crowd kind of favor his death, the people answer, his blood is on us and on our children. They forgot that. They forgot that they have caused Jesus to die. So Peter takes it another step further. He speaks to them more decisively and directly by saying, we must obey God rather than man. See, in his first time, he kind of 
said, it's in your hands. You can do whatever you want. You can, you can judge us. But this time, he is more direct by saying, we must obey God rather than man. He says, you can imprison and threaten and persecute us. You can try to cease and silence the movement of the Spirit. Your religious systems and power structures can no longer be a factor. We must obey God. We must be devoted to God. And Peter goes on to say more about this. He states that the God of our fathers raised Jesus. By using the phrase, the God of our fathers, they are identifying themselves with the Sanhedrin, that they, are, they have a common heritage, that the same God who has a heritage in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has raised Jesus from the dead. And when they heard this, when they heard this message from the disciples, they were infuriated. They didn't show any remorse. Instead, they desired revenge. See, God gave them a chance to repent, but they responded with murderous anger. This incident is so different from the devout Jews who gathered to hear Peter's sermon at Pentecost. They were pierced to the heart with guilt and responded by asking, brother, what shall we do? But sadly, this is not the same response to the religious leaders of the council. And at the end of the chapter, the apostles are beat severely. But they rejoice that they, counted, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame in the name of Jesus. It's a very different story from what we experience as our devotion to Jesus. And as I was reading and reflecting on this, I was asking a question like, what does this mean for us as people in modern-day Western Christianity? There's three things. Just like the early disciples, our devotion to follow Jesus will be challenged. Just like the early disciples, our devotion to follow Jesus will be costly. And three, just like the early disciples, our devotion to Jesus will be constant. So one, our devotion to follow Jesus will be challenged. The early church had a unique message about a unique Savior in a polarizing culture. They were constantly challenged both culturally and religiously. The religious institution was hesitant to accept the message of Jesus. They thought they ended the message of Jesus in the way of Jesus, but his disciples were continuing the message of Jesus within the walls of Jerusalem. And culturally, this was the challenge to spread this message about a unique Savior to a diverse and pluralistic culture. If we can remember, Israel was under Roman authority at this time. Roman was infused with power, wealth, political control, and the worship of many deities. In my opinion, as Christians and in the West, there are obvious parallels and amusing similarities. We too, surrounded, we too are surrounded by different deities who seek to merge Christian and American identities. We know the cultural wars are happening of what's trending and what's acceptable, what's offensive and what's too offensive. What should we cancel? What should we keep on? And all these wars that are happening in our culture 
all these wars that are happening within the church, fighting against our own people, Christian against Christian, denomination against domination, and protecting our religious institution while condemning others. I don't know about you, but for me personally, when all these wars of defending and protecting leaves us or leaves me powerless, paralyzed, and unsure about how to live and respond accordingly to the teachings of Jesus. It makes devotion to Jesus more challenging and tiresome. Is this true? Is this false? Is this spirit-led? Is this man-led? Is this right? Is this wrong? See, the challenges to finding the teachings of Jesus in the dominant culture will continue to be present. Our response as believers is not to first defend Jesus, but to remain in true communion and intimacy with Jesus. And out of that place, intimate space with Jesus, he will give us the understanding of his teachings, regardless of what the culture thinks, believes, or behaves. Two, our devotion to follow Jesus will be costly. The devotion of the disciples cost them their freedom and even their own lives. They were imprisoned by religious authorities for their devotion to Jesus. They were beaten and arrested. They were persecuted. But in the end, they continued to stay devoted to Jesus. In contrast, Christians in America or in the West have no context for being physically persecuted for our faith. It's almost the opposite for us. We think our persecution is linked to losing our comforts, not losing our lives. This is because we exist in a westernized world built on individualism, consumerism, and materialism. These three things guide the American way of life. This is not only a concern within our culture, but this is also a concern within the church. We craft the church as a place where only our desires and needs are met. The spiritual life becomes a consumable product that is exchanged only if it benefits the material and corporate well-being of the individual consumer. For instance, if the church doesn't have the right sermon, the right style of music, the right program, what do we do? We end up getting up and leaving and finding something better or finding something that fits our consumeristic palate. So how does devotion to Jesus become costly if we have everything we need? Since there isn't a cost to follow Jesus, we become less devoted to him. We must divorce ourselves from the temptation to be consumers of faith, which allows us to embrace a faith that calls us to be devoted to a costly Jesus. Three, our devotion to follow Jesus will be costly. They kept telling the Sanhedrin, we are witnesses. They didn't say we will, we will be witnesses or we were witnesses, but we are witnesses. It was present tense. It was active in an ongoing journey to the way of Jesus. Nothing and no one could stop them. The devotion did not waver. They believed that the word of God was sufficient in the works of God. 
They believed that they were invited to participate in the work of God, all because they encountered the intimacy of God and His Spirit. Our devotion today is wavering. We are drifting away from our call to be witnesses of Jesus. A witness is someone who can only attest to what they have seen and what they experience. We need to be faithful witnesses, not spiritual watchdogs barking at anyone who doesn't agree with us, barking at people who don't believe in our version of Jesus. We need to just be witnesses of what we have experienced from Jesus. Okay? So, again, they were devoted to Jesus. We need to be devoted to Jesus because their commitment to Jesus was challenging. It was costly. And it was constant. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we just offer um, our hearts to you. We thank you for um, just what you have done. Lord God, would you grow a heart in us for devotion to you? Lord God, would you teach us to, um, to give everything up for you, even our own lives, our comforts? Jesus, we, we ask for your spirit to, to seal whatever it is that you want your people to know. And Lord, I just thank you also for uh, this space as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.